Coming up in this episode. They didn't take any of us. They didn't kill any of us. They didn't burn any of us. They didn't rape any of us. We're here. This is my kitchen. That's my bed and my husband's bed. And then this is where all my three boys sleep. And this is the living room. My husband was so proud that for five years, his workers made 10 times more money working for him than they would in Aza, and they were able to provide more for their families. He was immensely proud of that. And now, they'll never work with people from Aza. I never believed in peace when the other side is only trained and taught to kill them. But I did believe in coexistence. Shalom. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome to Peace Talk, a podcast about Israel and the Middle East. I'm Jonathan Sajadotti, a Jewish journalist here in London. I am Mu'taz Khalil Mizo, Egyptian Muslim journalist based in Ilam. This episode, we have a very special guest coming up, Naomi Petel, who survived the Hamas attacks on the 7th of October in Nachaloz, one of the kibbutzim near the Gaza border. But before that, let's catch up a bit on what we've both been doing over the last week. As you know, I was in Israel for a couple of weeks. And first, before we talk about that, tell me a bit about what you went to here in the UK, Voices from the Tunnels in exactly. East London. Mizu in the tunnels to be stuck. Jonathan and Miso. Okay, I am in the tunnel now. This is our culture design. Okay. I go to it and this, I, I saw the film. I chopped. That's the film of the Hamas GoPro footage. Okay, yes, yes. And based on CCTV and the camera, which is a terrorist from Hamas holding in, in, the, in their head. It's a natural film. And, the, and uh, by the way, there is some audience can't continue to, to show the film because it's horrible. So people actually left while they were watching it? Yes, yes, yes. There is some which can continue and some crying. But in conclusion, it's a very, very sensitive and the most and the, uh, important message. Message not only to UK citizens, but message to the world. This is Hamas. This is Hamas. So it's so sensitive and I am proud to see this film. This film, it's so important message to me and the message to, to any man in the world. And I, I also saw the same compilation film of a few weeks back. I know that they're actually constantly modifying it as they get more and more of the footage that yes. they release um, from, from their own investigations. Yes. So I think what you saw is probably potentially even more harrowing. It's really very difficult to watch, isn't it? And even if you are a father, I still remember the Israeli man which hold his two kids and after that they kill the, the father and the, the, the baby is crying and after that the woman come to see her husband's body. It's horrible. It's horrible. What happened in 7th of October? It's horrible. I think, I think it's Nazi Holocaust on life. I think that on air, on air. You can see Nazi Holocaust on air. And I think that film that you had that opportunity to see as part of the Voices of the Tunnels uh, installation was really important. I think going forward, as, as people in wider and wider circles get an opportunity to see 
that film, that compilation of, of footage. It's it's uncensored, so it's very hard to watch, but it's also with very little commentary. It's the film put in chronological order with a few captions on screen and translations for those who don't speak Arabic. I think it's really, really important to watch it if you get a chance. And if you're strong enough of heart, it's not for everybody. Some people really can't bear that. But I think that those who can have a responsibility to the world to, yes. to see it. Yes. While I was in Israel, I went to the south and saw some of the communities there who were affected by that horrific day, those horrific attacks. Um, there's a film that I've put up already, and people can see that, where I went to see Kibbutz Beri, uh, where many people were killed, kidnapped, um, and houses were extraordinarily just burnt completely inside. Yes. yes. I, I realized then just the extent of it, seeing it yourself, being in the room obviously doesn't compare to seeing on film, but hopefully it brings a bit of that across. And, and what they told us was about the weaponry that they used, which was not... All kinds of weapons. Weapons. All kinds. I mean, All kinds. things that you would normally associate with an army, thermobaric grenades, which are designed to burn yes. and explode at such a high temperature that they absolutely destroy everything around them. The home that I was able to go into and RB, see... RBJ. Okay, everything, every weapons. Yeah. I think, I think they they always need a tanking, something and blades, fighter blades to be an army, to be an army which attacks civilian innocent people. Well, I think that's the point as well. When you hear Israelis, for example, Benjamin Netanyahu saying that if there's a Palestinian state ever, they can't have their own army. Here we can see why, because without an army, they used weapons of war that are normally used in the battlefield in people's home. I can agree. I can agree if they have an army and, and, for example, fight an army. Okay, it's a war. But kill an army, kill baby. Nine months, two months. What is that? What and is that crazy? The home that I went into belongs to a woman who was 74 years old. She spent her entire life as a peace activist working with Palestinians in her retirement. She took on this voluntary role driving Gazan Palestinians from Gaza all the way to Jerusalem for hospital treatment in Israeli hospitals. And yet there she was. Her body took five weeks to be identified. By the way, she she and the other people organized demonstration against the BB government. Oh, absolutely. Okay, to give aid to Gaza. Yeah. By the way, by the way, okay? And the many Gaza people, no, no help. And later on, we're going to be speaking with Naomi Petal, who in fact okay. uh, was part of the Kibbutz Nachalos, and her husband employed Gazans in the Kibbutz uh, as, farming, as farming hands, effectively, giving them opportunities in life. And she works as a nurse. Exactly. In a hospital and trait. We were in Palestinian. From one of these very people who lived in the Kibbutzim, who actually... Uh, was working towards peaceful coexistence with Gazan Palestinians for many, many years. So just before we cross over to Naomi, I wanted to give you this, which I got over in Israel. It's, Thank you. It's a bring them home dog tag. Everybody's okay. wearing them okay. there. And I got it in Hostage Square. So um, it's a small gesture, but hopefully one that will show our solidarity. So. Thank you. Thank you, Joe. Thank you. And many thanks a lot. And this is a small little thing which we should do which we see you should stand with with these innocent people and there was a stand with Gaza in the sites of Gaza in Israel and really really we should start with them thank you thank you Joe pleasure now it's time to cross over to Naomi Petal who was in the kibbutz Nachalos 
on the morning of the attacks on October the 7th with her family. She's a nurse there and lived in a house that they had recently built themselves in the new neighborhood of the kibbutz. And, and Naomi, thank you for joining us. We're delighted that you can and that you'll tell us a bit about your experiences there. But first off, how are you doing? I never know how to answer that question. Um, if I say I'm okay, that's not right. If I say everything's terrible, that's not right also. Um, I am. I'm alive. Um, my kids are safe. My husband's still with me. Um, so I'm, I'm dealing. I'm dealing. And where are you based now? We were um, rescued out of our house on uh, October 8th after 19 hours by the IDF. And we were taken uh, by bus to uh, Kibbutz Mishma'a Emek, which is two hours north of Nachalos. And that's where we've been ever since. And actually, you were familiar with that kibbutz already, right? Could you explain why? This is our third time being evacuated here. Um, kibbutz Nachalos, unfortunately, has had to evacuate um, in the past. In the last two and a half years, um, we've had to leave our house due to rockets and missiles. Um, but it was always um, whenever we wanted to go, time to pack up our bags, pack up our kids, probably spend a night at my parents' house in Jerusalem, and then come here to Mishmara Ebek um, when we had time, when it was when it was right for us. Um, and in those previous times, we got to know the people and understand the way this kibbutz runs and where everything is, and we and we we were very familiar with it. So when we got here on a bus at six a.m. on Sunday, October eighth, um, we had nothing. I mean, my kids were barefoot because we forgot to bring them shoes uh, because we had three minutes to pack up. Um, whatever we could think of. We didn't even know some of the people what their status was. They were missing. We didn't know if they were kidnapped or dead, but not yet identified because there were so many bodies. And the process of identifying all of those bodies took days. Like the first funeral we went to was three days after this happened. Um, even though that man was shot in front of his family and they knew he was dead but he wasn't confirmed dead um and announced dead so there wasn't a funeral immediately and in judaism you want to bury someone who passed right away within those 24 hours but there were just too many bodies i know that Nahal was one of the kibbutzim okay which gives aid to the Palestinians in Gaza, help them to go to the hospitals, give aid to them. I know, I know you support the Palestinians and, and many, many, many of the boys didn't do that. Can you describe about that, about your, your helping in the Palestinian in the past? My husband um, is a farmer and he grows bananas and avocados. And for the last five years, he has worked, hired, and paid Gazan workers to come and work with them every single day. 
the same 20 to 40 men for the last five years, working shoulder to shoulder with machete knives. Okay, so this big. And on that morning, the 7th, 20 workers from Aza were in his fields working. And the moment that first initial attack of those 3,000 missiles, the moment that ended, the first thing he did was run to his phone and call them to make sure that they were okay. And they were fine. They were, they had run away already. The, the, the attack started, they were in the fields, and one of those missiles hit very close to their car. And they got, and they quickly ran into back into their car and left the scene. And to find out later that so many of these team and people that have been working over the years in the fields and in the landscaping and building our homes, those were informants. Those were people involved with gathering intelligence for Hamas. Um, that is heartbreaking because Nahal Oz is 680 meters from Aza, door to door. A third of the bananas my husband grew, he sold to Gaza. There was reciprocity. There was um, there was a working environment and cooperation between Aza and Nahal's. To know that people from my kibbutz who would volunteer to meet people from Aza at the border and drive them to hospitals and wait with them all day. And over the years, develop a longstanding relationships with these people and these families of sick kids and sick adults to know that those people who truly believed that peace was possible, those people are more heartbroken and more shattered than I am. My reality is I never believed in peace. I never believed in peace when the other side is only trained and taught to kill me. But I did believe in coexistence. I did believe that we could live quietly side by side. I did not believe that I would ever be able to go to Aza to fix my car or to get eat a falafel on the beach. And I never believed that people from Aza would come here and buy homes and, and send their kids to school. But people from Aza came to Israel to work. People from Israel set up um, um, businesses with workers in Aza. Um, I believe that could happen because the economic incentive to prosper uh, would be bigger and greater and for the benefit of everyone. My husband was so proud that for five years, his workers made 10 times more money working for him than they would in Aza, and they were able to provide more for their families. He was immensely proud of that. That was to him way more um, a, a huge step towards peace than any other agreement. And now they'll never work with people from Aza. Has he been in touch with any of those workers since? Those workers were um, immediately taken to a police station that day and they were incarcerated 
and interrogated to make sure that that what their involvement was. It was later found out that they, those men were not involved and they were released and sent back to Gaza. Their bosses have been in touch with my husband. I don't know if he's picked up the phone. I don't know if he's answered. I mean, it, that little story, little, tragedy, in and of itself, it just, it's a, an absolute reflection of the huge tragedy, as you say, of, of what's just happened. Because the tragedy of, of the deaths, of the rapes, of the kidnapping, we know that. That's told every day, and so it should be. But the tragedy of the future is perhaps what you're describing there, that, that the relationship your husband, your kibbutz, your business had with those people, the relationship of them with your state, the relationship now in the future, it's just everything has changed. It, can it ever go back to anything like that again? I don't think so. Not in the, not in the next decade. At least the breach of trust is phenomenal. I, I told, um, I realized something the first week. I realized that Hamas and Iran, who authorized this attack, and Hamas, who orchestrated and planned it thoroughly, knew what the price would be. They knew the price would be the people of Aza. And they didn't care. They knew the price would be war. They knew the price would be um, devastation and deaths. They knew the price would be closing the borders and no workers would be able to come through and work and make an income and provide for their families. They knew that. They didn't give a shit. They just didn't care. They wanted to orchestrate this attack. And by the way, according to a poll that happened within the last month, 75% of Gazans approved, approved and celebrated the seven, which is my main issue with this whole uh, narrative of the innocence in Aza. Because I don't think the numbers of innocents are as high as people say they are. And people who celebrated the seven. People who paraded the streets when bodies were brought in, when hostages, alive or dead, were brought in. Those people aren't, you know, paid members of Hamas. Those are ordinary civilians. But they were parading. The people that were outside every single UN car who took a released hostage back to Israel Hostages coming back say that was the most terrifying moment. I wanted to ask you about the crowd, the balagan, about the UNRWA, fund the UNRWA, something like that. As an Israeli mother, not Israeli citizen, as an Israeli mother, what do you would tell the UNRWA and the United Nations in this point? UNRWA was founded in 1948 as a temporary solution um, for the refugees after the 1948 war. It was never meant, in, in, in my understanding, in the West's understanding, it was never meant to be this long-standing 
status. To have people stay in, in refugee status for 75 years, generations in, that's three, four generations. The amount of money that has been poured in hasn't helped. The textbooks that have been um, handed out by the teachers of UNRWA haven't helped elevate their status. They want to keep them there. They want to keep them in that status of poor refugees to, because that drives more money in. The, and I'm so happy that the world is waking up to realize what UNRWA actually is and they're defunding it. Because maybe when the money stops, that's when finally things can change. You guys have done more from what I can hear for Palestinians than the majority of people here who are out on the streets chanting apparently against Israel, supposedly in favor of a Palestinian state. You've employed them. You've given them salaries that are multiples higher than they would earn in Gaza so that they can build lives and an economy and even a sort of state of their own there. And you've also suffered the most from Palestinian terrorism. Um, so I'm curious what your message is to people in the West who look at what's happening and they say defunding UNRWA doesn't help the ordinary Gazans who still rely on on their on them for their well-being and bombing Gaza doesn't help the innocent civilians and all of this is really bad on Hamas but what about the rest of the Palestinians in Gaza your people who've directly helped those people in Gaza so what do you say need a minute to think about what I would say to them because the first thing I say to them is shut the f up um, and stop getting your information from TikTok. That's the first thing I'll say. Um, educate yourself more because those people don't get that. Those people don't understand that Israel funds so much of regular Gazans. Israel gives aid and medicine and brings people across the border into our hospital. Aza has over 30 hospitals. Why does it need our hospitals? Um, I think that in order to really fix the problem, you need a, a much bigger and braver solution. And defunding UNRWA means that you're just defunding a part of Hamas. And I think that people need to understand in a very, very simplistic way UNRWA equals Hamas. Let's be let's let's keep it really, really, really simple. It's it's way more complicated than that. But UNRWA in Aza in many ways equals Hamas. Well, the money right. doesn't it, go it, to, it, in the sense that, like, just to say to add to that. Sorry to interrupt, but just to add to that. The biggest, I think, employer in Gaza is UNRWA, if I'm not mistaken. It's one of the biggest at the very least. And at the same time, we have opinion polls in Gaza, which show a massive majority support for Hamas's activities on October the 7th. So even I could do the simple maths of saying that there has to be a massive crossover between the two and that the people working 
in UNRWA are at the very least in Gaza entirely sympathetic to Hamas, if not affiliated with it, right? 100% because the textbooks have been exposed and the textbooks are not to learn math and engineering and peace and acceptance and history. They are to teach violence and how to conquer back Israel. And the only way to fully be free is to kill every Jew. And that coincides exactly with what Hamas is. And let me put it this way. All the people in the last 30 years who've been educated by UNRWA, let's go even back, further back, 75 years, all the people from Hamas were educated in UNRWA because those are all UNRWA schools. So it could very well be that that's when they were initially indoctrinated and radicalized and taught that this is the only way to be. But then add to that just so much money so much money and support for when you do commit a crime, when you do kill a Jew, when you are in prison for trying to kill a Jew, you only you not only get money, but your family gets money. So this whole self-feeding monster and in cycle that just keeps going and going and going, there's no reason for them to stop because it brings money in. And if you're not a member of Hamas, and if you're not a supporter of Hamas, then you really are a very, very poor, innocent civilian. But that's not the majority. And for those civilians, everyone needs to fight for. But that's not UNRWA. I don't know right now of a um, uh, uh, non-government organization or, or charity that really, truly helps the innocence of us. I, I don't know of one, but all the money that's been going into UNRWA and the UN over the years for this issue, um, it hasn't helped bring them forward at all. And unfortunately, as far as Hamas goes, you know, for, for the world, the more dead bodies they keep on the ground and the more injured people they keep untreated, that just traffics, that just brings more money in. Some of the West here said that if we stop the UNRWA, so we should create another organization. How we trust that this organization will not fund Hamas and the other terrorists. So what is the solution now? You know that it's a tragedy there. I don't know what the solution is. I really don't. Like Jonathan said, I'm a nurse, I'm a mother, I'm a wife, I'm a community member, I'm a daughter, I'm a friend. I am not a policymaker. I am not an army official. I'm not an intelligence official. I'm not a state official. I don't have all the information and I don't know. I don't know how it can be better. But I do know that Hamas and the Palestinian Authority have received billions of dollars. But because their civilians are under refugee status, 
none of that money goes towards civilians. That goes to fund Hamas and underground Hamas tunnels and weapons and food and living a very, very comfortable luxury life in Turkey or Qatar for all the heads of Hamas. After the 7th, Israel was still being attacked daily, right? But hardly any civilians were hit because of shelters, because of civilians listening to army officials telling them what to do when there is an attack. Why are there no shelters in Gaza? Why is Hamas not telling people head to safety? We're under attack. Doesn't do that. Doesn't care about its civilians. It hides behind its civilians. It hides under UNRWA. It hides under hospitals. It hides under schools. It hides in playgrounds. It hides, there's tunnels in a, in a children's nursery. Tell me a bit though, as you said, you're a mother. Tell me a bit about the education your children had as a contrast to that. How did you bring up your kids? How does Israel bring up its kids, especially there on the border with Gaza? I have three sons. My oldest is in second grade and my youngest is two. My two-year-old comes home from his um, day in kindergarten and we sing songs about the weather and the rain and the animals and the holidays. And my uh, first and second grader kids, they're six and seven, um, they talk about soccer and they talk about uh, action movies and superheroes and fighter jets. And they say, when I want, when I grow up, I'll be a soldier because I want to protect my family. When they asked me, why did this happen? Why did bad people come to our house? Why did they kill our neighbors? I said, there are some bad people in the world, but the army is here and the soldiers is here to keep us safe. IDF stands for Israel Defense Force. Its primary goal is to protect and defend the people of Israel. All the people of Israel. When I teach my kids about life, I teach them about life. I don't teach them in any way it's good to die for your country. It's good to kill bad people. Never. Never. I would never want them to kill anyone. I would never want them to believe that that's what they should do especially when, when, not, when they're this young. But I've seen videos of little girls in the kindergarten asking them, what do you want to be when you grow up? I want to be a Shaheen. I want to kill Jews. I've never, ever seen that in my kids' education. Uh, you are a nurse. In yes. A, okay. And I've How? cared for people from Aza. How many... In the, so we, for example, you give them a... I, a, a nurse or a doctor or a medical professional cares for anyone in front of them because they're a patient. I've cared for them because they were sick and no one should be sick. 
I've cared for them um, because that was my job. And that, and I hoped that me caring for them would show them that they are good people in Israel and that peace is a better option than war and death. I don't think anything will help right now because this is what they were taught as very small kids. It's going to take a generation of teaching the children something else so that they grow up to believe that something else is possible. So you're, you're where you are now. You're in the kibbutz. You're living in one room with your entire family. Yes. Tell me a bit about that, how that is going. It's been a while now. This is my kitchen. That's my bed and my husband's bed. And then this is where all my three boys sleep. And this is the living room. Wow. Yes. <laughs> I, I mean, you're like real refugees, huh? Yes, but the UN doesn't fund us and doesn't give us any um, any support. And also, moving on from that, what next? In in close steps, one in the coming weeks, and what in the coming months and years? What what's your hope? October seventh was its own um, tragedy, but beyond that, it took away my yesterday and my tomorrow. I don't remember a lot of what happened before the seventh, and I cannot plan ahead into the future. Um, I can only, t when I talk about future, I talk about in terms of one to two days ahead. That's it. Um, because planning beyond that is too much and too big and too exhausting. Like you said, Jonathan, we um, we built a house on Nechalos and we lived there for nine months before the seventh. And that house isn't available to me right now. It's it's the house that my kids know and love, and it's the house that I took so much time and energy to plan and build and design, as anyone would. Brand new house, first time building a home, and it was going to be our forever home. And we have no idea when we can go back. And we don't know if and when emotionally and mentally we're able to go back. So like you said, we, the five of us are living in this 25 square meter room, which is our bedroom, our living room, our pantry, our bathroom, and our closet. And we're making the best of it because I know how easily we could have not all been here together. The fact that the five of us survived and we're here together is something that stays with me every single moment. So I don't complain that everything is cramped. I complain that it's messy because that can be fixed. But I don't complain that we're all together crammed in one room. These are really uncharted territories and these days are really, really hard. We don't have a lot of control over most aspects of our lives. Um, and yet, 
I am beyond grateful of the fact that we're all here. They didn't take any of us. They didn't kill any of us. They didn't burn any of us. They didn't rape any of us. We're here. And right now, that is everything. Because I have a friend who lives in this kibbutz whose daughter was murdered in front of her and her husband was taken. And he's still there. And she has three other children that she has to care for, so she has to keep it together. And every moment is hell. So for me, it's a little easier. How are you managing as a family, even just as an individual, how are you managing to keep going every day? You get up every morning. You don't know what's going to happen in your lives. You have no control over it. What's your outlook? I, if I didn't love children, that I have to get ready in the morning and, and send them off to school and kindergarten and, and start their day. There are days where I would stay in bed. There were days where I would just feel like I can't do it. It's too sad. I'm too heartbroken. I'm, 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 I'm feeling it all. I'm feeling the loss. I'm feeling the rage. I'm feeling the immense grief and sadness and the fear for the hostages that are still there. There are days where I feel it all, and those are very difficult days. Uh, but I'm also very honest about days like that because it's part of this roller coaster. I will forever miss my neighbor, Ilan, who was killed that day. But I don't cry over his death every single day. That's part of the grief. And what happened to us is so big. It didn't just happen to me. It didn't just happen to my family. It didn't just happen to my community. It happened to tens of thousands of people. And all of those people's families who, whose lives have been forever changed also. So it's so big. So knowing that in no way I am, I, I, I'm alone in this. Every single thing I'm feeling, thousands of other people are feeling them as well, if not the whole country. And I think something that really helps is community. Knowing, not just that I'm not alone in how I'm feeling, but knowing that my neighbor who lives right here, who's also a refugee like me, who's also a mother, who's dealing with every single challenge parenthood has and is dealing with trying to be normal, she's going through the same thing. So all it takes is a look because there aren't any words anymore. We've run out of words. We use them all up to describe um, traffic and a final exam and a bad meal. You know, it was hell. It was a catastrophe. Ugh, it was brutal. Uh, there aren't any words to describe what we went through on the 7th. So there aren't any words to describe what we're feeling now. So it's enough to look at a friend and know that they know what I'm going through and just hug it out. Jews 
have been threatened and thrown out and persecuted and attacked and killed all over the world throughout our history. And even though it didn't just happen to you guys there in Israel, the difference now is your own government, your own homes, your own army, your own defense. It's a sense of being able to look after yourselves, right? Yes. Don't get me wrong. It would have been really, really nice if all the countries that Israel has sent aid to and delegations after hurricanes and and tornadoes and um, tsunamis and earthquakes and, um, you know, other huge devastation. It would have been really nice if all those countries would have said, wow, what do you need? We're coming. By the way, zero of them did. We know where we live in the world. We know who our neighbors are. We know that to rely on them is not an option. And that is very, very hard because I'm raising three sons right now and I don't know where in the world is safe for them other than Israel. And we were in that attack, okay? We were there. And I'm still saying Israel is the safest place because I don't want them to experience uh, um, secret anti-Semitism, you know? I don't want them to experience that level of Well, I mean, on that note, thank you. And you you. said it. You said that you went through this on that day and since, and that there are thousands around you who went through it in the country. But I want you to know there are thousands more around the world like us who, who went through it with you. And we're going through it with you today and, and onwards. And I really mean that. So, so I, as I said, I look forward to one day, I don't know when it will be, when you and I can meet up, uh, all three of us can meet up in Israel, on a beach, have a drink, and we won't Yay. be talking about any of this. So let's, let's look forward to that. And in the meantime, yeah, keep strong, keep strong. And, keep... and God bless you. Thank you. Thank, thank you, you, thank you. Thank uh, thanks you. a lot. Thanks a lot. That's all we've got time for in this episode, but do come back next time when we'll have more talk, which hopefully leads to more peace. Shalom. Assalamu alaikum.